everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. I want to start this episode with a thank you to sponsors. Part of this is an explanation of how Anchor works with regard to sponsorships and finances, but it's not an Anchor ad, and it's not a call for sponsors. I do need to talk a little bit about how funding works at Anchor, but this is not an Anchor ad and it's going somewhere, so bear with me for just a few minutes. Obviously, individual listeners can sign on as sponsors, but the main draw for Anchor is that it allows advertising. It does use metrics to recommend ads, however, my podcast is small and doesn't really qualify yet for what I'd call a real advertiser. So Anchor was an ad sponsor when I first started, and recently they've tried again to see where I'm at now as you will have heard if you've listened to any of the episodes lately on Anchor. Over the election season, I ran some ads that were unpaid public service announcements because I felt they were important. But just to give you an idea of how it works, so you'll understand what I'm about to talk about. First, I wanted to say thank you to the folks who have sponsored on Anchor, or dropped a tip on PayPal. Although sponsor and PayPal info are included in the description, I don't really push for that or promote it. Funding for the podcast isn't huge. And that's fine because I'm not doing this as a moneymaker. However, because a lot of my recent content has included the experiences of marginalized groups, which intersected with paid anchor advertising during these past couple months, I realized that I needed to pay it back in some way. It isn't just enough to talk about these issues. Action is also required. What good is information if it doesn't lead to change? So I decided to lead by example and share with folks that I used the proceeds received at Anchor to date to sponsor the Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference and also to buy bus passes to support the Atheists Helping the Homeless effort that Phil and I discussed in a prior episode. I consider sharing the voices of these communities and advocates as a social obligation. And when I saw I was benefiting from sharing their voices, I recognized an additional obligation to give back. I'd just as well advise people to donate directly to the causes themselves instead of to me and my podcast. But if I don't pay it back after receiving benefits from the voices of marginalized people, then I'm doing nothing but appropriating their oppression for profit. So thank you to those who made it possible. I believe, as cliche as it is, that together we can be the change in the world that we want to see. It just takes looking for opportunities and taking advantage of them. The next thing I want to talk about could easily fall under a category called I get mail. I don't get nearly as much mail as I used to get, but even with this podcast, I get a little bit. I wouldn't even call it mail. It's generally comments that are posted online in the public spaces. I do feel an obligation to moderate the spaces to keep them safe. With that in mind, I sometimes do moderate those platforms, and I will delete comments or block individuals depending on the content and what I think about what's being said and whether or not it's hostile, whether or not it's safe. What I don't want to do is provide a platform to people for marginalization. And I don't want to encourage threads that could do harm to marginalized people in communities. I don't want to entertain trolls, but sometimes a person has a question or raises an issue that is worth discussing, but the public forum is not the safest space to do so. I'm happy to use the podcast content to provide a productive format to address items that may provide productive benefit. Even a misconception about marginalization can be an opportunity to talk about where these misconceptions arise and how they integrate into structural frameworks, why they're used, and how they invoke the reactions and responses that they do. Having grown up in communities of oppressors who propagated misconceptions and instilled many of them into me, which later had to be undone and unlearned, a lot of these attitudes are familiar to me from my former context. 
I received one such communication recently and deleted it from the space for reasons I just explained, and I'm going to respond to it line by line. But first, I'd like to discuss for a moment two different definitions of racism that are often used and how I've seen them used during public discourse on social media forums. People who are familiar with my prior work will know that I was active in secular circles for nearly a decade. In that time, one of the most controversial issues that came up chronically was the definition of atheism. Inevitably, people who wanted to argue against an atheist position would appeal to what was referred to as a narrow definition or denial. Most people within the atheist community, on the other hand, appealed to a broad definition that focused more on disbelief. The narrow definition of an atheist as someone who denies the existence of a god created a reality where many people who don't believe in the existence of gods would not be included in the category of atheist. It reduced the community substantially in number of members, created a divide between agnostic atheists and gnostic atheists, and it created a context where the atheist was now making a positive claim that would require an argument or evidence to support. So it took the heat off the theist who could then focus on denying an atheist's claim so that they had less pressure to address arguments or evidence for their own claims about the existence of a god. I don't want to rehash those arguments, they can be found online. But I want to note that owning a definition can provide a real-world advantage and be used to support or further marginalize a non-dominant culture within a society. Which definition is used will benefit either the oppressor or the oppressed. With racism, it is no different. There are two main definitions that are currently commonly used from my experience. One focuses on individual interactions and attitudes and actions of individuals. The other focuses on social movements and constructs and broad harm caused by systems that perpetuate advantages or disadvantages that correspond to race. The former is the go-to definition that offers benefits to white supremacy and racist oppression. It does this in three main ways. Number one, because it lacks broad social implications, it decenters the conversation about racism away from social harm and on to individual data points or instances that do not have broader social implications. Because these things are already addressed through law and policy, no next steps are indicated to address them. The only way to see them is if they're expressly stated or overtly demonstrated, and even then it can be difficult. If a white person does violence to a black person on the street, we would have to have some admission that the target was chosen based on race, otherwise the crime could be chalked up to a random violent act, divorced from race or racism. So even in cases where laws are broken and violence perpetuated, it's almost impossible to tie this sort of racism to anything tangible. So right off the bat, racism is reduced to only extreme illegal harm that can be tied to discriminatory or prejudicial attitudes tied to race and only when they are openly expressed. This is often described as needing a cross burning in the yard and a white hood for anyone to actually be correctly labeled as a racist. This ignores social systems working as intended that do harm to non-white communities and if the idea is to advocate for meaningful change, pointing out extremes and abuses is unhelpful because we already have laws addressing most extreme acts of violence, harassment, and intimidation. I'm not opposed to stronger laws protecting groups that are more often targeted, that require greater protections, but that's about as far as you can go with a conversation when race is used as an internal individual attitude that could manifest in some illegal act of harm. But if mass social harm can be seen as a trend in social systems that are working within the law, 
that would require a much greater effort since it would involve a system-wide overhaul and not minor updates to existing laws and policies, none of which would be addressed with this definition of racism. The second benefit to white supremacists with this definition of personal attitudes is that it opens the door for attacks against the people who are actually the ones suffering social oppression by focusing on race rather than social power tied to race. I once used an example of how absurd this looks when we try to translate it to other forms of social isms, such as classism. Imagine a man who works for minimum wage. He's married and has two small children. He has not had a raise in five years and grew up in an impoverished community with subpar schools, underfunded because of property values that remain low because every dump site or prison is built just a mile away, since the wealthy communities on the other side of town have all the political clout and won't allow such property value damaging structures near them. His family is already on public assistance to assist with food purchases. His oldest child has special needs, but they can't afford the appropriate therapy for his situation, so he and his wife struggle to help as best they can. Today, as he was clocking out, his manager addressed the staff to alert them that the plant was closing and moving to an offshore facility to increase company profits. He's wondering how he's going to make the next rent payment and keep his family housed. He's trying to think of how he's going to explain this situation to his wife and what will become of his children. Then, as he's walking to the bus stop, he passes a Mercedes dealership. And in his anger and frustration at the entire system, with so much discrepancy between haves and have-nots in his society, he scratches one of the cars on the lot with a small rock as he walks past, thinking to himself, eat the rich. If I'm going to look at classism as personal attitudes, anger, violent, illegal behavior, this is an act of classism. But suggesting that would be considered an absurdity by most people who understand classism as a term that describes a system where this man in poverty is the victim, not the perpetrator. His anger comes not out of disdain for other people, but frustration at his own oppression. He isn't lashing out at wealth, but at the oppressive system symbolized by the vehicle driven by the people who profit off his labor and disadvantage. And if we want to fix classism, then this man keying a car is not the problem we need to be focusing on. It's the disparity that's squeezing the life and joy out of him and everyone like him to benefit others who are in a lot of cases blissfully unaware of the cost of their privilege paid by this man and his family. I see no reason why the problem of racism should not be similarly viewed and addressed. This definition allows an oppressor to toss the vast social damage and target the person suffering the most harm as the real problem, the real perpetrator, the one doing harm and damage, not the one we need to be helping. It also ignores that the person on the receiving end of racist oppression may be lashing out at someone white due to the oppression perpetuated from the top down in the racial hierarchy. That is, do they hate me because I'm white or because I'm benefiting from their oppression as a white person? A few examples of how I benefit actually manifested in recent weeks. I need to replace my house windows. I was told that if I can pay the whole amount up front, I can save a good deal on the final price, as opposed to financing the purchase, which will cost more. Because I'm white, I'm more likely to be above the poverty line than someone who is not white, especially someone who is black. And so the way our economic system is set up, my economic advantage that I already have translates to even more advantage, which rolls downhill onto the backs of people with less economic advantage, who pay more, and in return, I can be afforded a discount. So I benefit from both classism and racism with my new window purchase. 
Next, the city I live in, Austin, is having issues with housing insecurity. Some of the solutions involve setting up permanent and temporary shelters and housing facilities in and around neighborhoods where resources can be accessed easily. My mostly white neighborhood, right next to the golf course private country club neighborhood, is pushing back hard on any solutions that put these types of shelters or housing near our area of the city. Facilities like these are often seen as negatives, like prisons or dump sites, and because of that, my neighborhood may end up being successful in shuttering these facilities near our area. This means they will move to another area and possibly impact property values there, which will in turn impact heritable wealth and translate to less resource allocation and less investment in those areas of the city. The have-nots will get less, the haves will get more, and the cycle will continue to self-perpetuate. The third advantage to white supremacists from the individual attitude definition of racism is that it exonerates white supremacists and racists who aren't intentionally hateful in the way they perpetuate harm against non-white communities. It allows me to do mass damage and receive great advantage based on race without acknowledging demonstrated trends that would show that. Remember, we don't care about social pressure. We don't care about social harm to entire communities. We're only interested here in whether I hate people who aren't white. And if I don't, then no matter how much damage I perpetuate against non-white people and communities, no matter how much privilege and advantage I gain from being white, I'm not racist or white supremacist. Hey, I didn't create this system, and if I just so happen to be born on top of a racial hierarchy, that's just the breaks, right? Sorry it didn't break so well for you, black people in the U.S. What we're looking at here is a common definition of racism, and some folks will say that viewing it as systemic institutional, or societal is a newfangled definition that was just made up by some black guy, and why should we use it? In fact, I was confronted with this very claim on the comment thread of a Texas representative's Facebook page where he was denouncing critical race theory. The people who suggest that systemic racism is just a fantasy invention of black people aren't considering that dictionaries themselves are a social power and authority that is owned and operated by the dominant culture. If your community is disempowered and marginalized, then it's very unlikely you'll be producing dictionaries that are in common use. People who experience oppression understand that it's not isolated to a single interaction here or there. If it were, then it wouldn't be any more relevant than encountering someone rude randomly in public. The problem with religious oppression is that it's perpetuated legally in many cases, because religious leaders have so much influence in the political arena. If religion had no social or political power, why would I care if religious people individually didn't like me as an atheist? If my rights are intact, if justice is afforded to me as much as the next person, if I have access to resources and opportunities the same as everyone else, then so what if some people don't like me? How is that different than any random people disliking me for a number of reasons, valid or invalid? Oppression from the side of the oppressor is often about how they feel or behave individually. But from the side of the person who's oppressed, it's system-wide. When I was active in the atheist community, I knew there were a lot of Christians who didn't hate atheists or Muslims. But when they supported systems that disadvantaged me, that forced an atheist child to say a pledge or pass a religious mural, that made it near impossible for a gay couple to adopt, I understood that's where the problem began. As a woman, it's similar. If it were just about a man here and there with negative views of women, I wouldn't care. It's when our system cheers about record numbers of women in Congress, and it's still less than 30%. That's when I raise an eyebrow. Part of oppression and marginalization is silencing voices of the oppressed. I remember studying Anne Bradstreet in college. She kept journals about her experiences living in the U.S. colonies. 
I remember one story in particular about another woman living in the same colony who spoke up about some of the things Bradstreet had complained about in her journals. She shared this woman's concerns, but not her fortitude to challenge the male leadership on their policies and decisions. The woman who addressed the men and asserted herself was eventually sent back to Europe and institutionalized. The assumption being that mental illness was causing her to disrespect the male authority. When women are already afraid to speak up, and then they see one of their own punished for daring to do so, it reinforces the status quo, but also allows the dominant culture, in this case men, to own the narrative, the conversation, the laws, the policies, and to define the role and place and even perspectives of non-men who cannot speak for themselves. And it was similar with indigenous populations in the U.S. who were displaced and murdered, their children stolen and raised in schools and institutions to enculturate them into white society and value systems. Their culture and experiences were effectively erased, along with their voices. It was done as well with black people who were enslaved and eventually disallowed from even learning to read and write. It wasn't that they didn't have an experience, it was that their experiences had no platform. They had no value in white society, and their view, attitudes, and experiences, understandings of their own situation did not exist because it was erased in order to perpetuate a status quo. So when someone says that a view of racism as system-wide oppression is a newfangled thing invented by black people only recently, they need to remember that there's been a black experience in this country for a very long time that has been suppressed by white dominant culture. During the 1960s is when systemic racism or institutional racism became what we might think of as an official thing with white people. What's interesting is that a lot of people talk about slavery in the U.S. being so far in our past, and yet the last known living former enslaved person died in the 1970s, some years after institutional racism came into the language. And yet to the racist, slavery is an ancient history, while the concept of institutional racism is a brand new concept. A young woman named Kennedy Mitchum addressed her peers about their racism in her college class. They handed her a Merriam-Webster dictionary to show that they could not possibly be racist. They were using the very definition I'm talking about here. Mitchum actually reached out to Merriam-Webster and explained that they needed to update their definition of racism to include systemic racism. Merriam-Webster initially replied with a decline. Mitchum then collected resources, citations, and evidence that she continued to send to Merriam-Webster until they had to acknowledge that yes, this was a definition that was in use both academically and in the public dialogue, and that it should be included in the definition of racism in their dictionary. It was not easy to get them to understand that this was required, and Mitchum herself had to deal with racist harassment because the definition did not reflect a black experience. So this was a real-world incident that reflected the very situation that I'm trying to describe here, where white supremacists and racists use this definition to exonerate themselves from the harm that they perpetuate and insist that they are not racist. This allows them to say that racism in the U.S. is a minor issue. The definition that Merriam-Webster was using benefited white supremacy. So when someone says that a view of racism as system-wide oppression is a newfangled thing invented by black people only recently, they need to remember that there's been a black experience in this country for a very long time that's been suppressed by white dominant culture. All that being said, it's interesting how many people can hear what I just explained and come back to me with a dictionary showing their definition is valid, as though I said it isn't a definition some people use. A dictionary is supposed to reflect usage, and I agree that both definitions are often used. I'm not saying that a definition that focuses on individual attitudes and behavior does not exist. 
I'm saying it benefits white supremacists and racists in a number of ways. If someone wants to use it, they can. I have no vocabulary enforcement authority. But I do think that when a word is used in a certain way, and there are social implications, it's completely fair to point them out. So with the stage set with regard to terms and usage and implications, let's look at this comment. It begins, quote, It's unfair to expect that a white person should by default just accept any accusation of racism and go into the mode of asking the accuser questions and listening and trying to understand, unquote. So asking questions, listening, and trying to understand is a problem why? And why is it unfair to expect it from a white person? Why should white people, with our knees on the neck of non-white people around the globe, and certainly here in the U.S., not be expected to listen and try to understand when someone wants to talk to us about the oppression we perpetuate and the advantages we gain from perpetuating that system? Even if they're wrong, it's like saying Derek Chauvin should not be expected to listen to folks saying that what he's doing to Floyd is problematic because Chauvin doesn't understand. Or alternatively, if a cop were doing something that was safe, but appeared unsafe, and others seeing it didn't understand, what's the problem with a cop saying that he's sorry that what he's doing appears violent and is upsetting to bystanders, but that in reality it's not harmful, and then explaining the technique? Since most accusations of racism don't happen in emergency settings, any person on the top of the racial hierarchy has the luxury of being able to stop, apologize, listen, and learn. I can learn how to be less oppressive, understand my privilege and benefits, or even how my language may reflect ideas I wasn't even aware of that can make someone else feel more oppressed, disempowered, or marginalized. What is the downside? What do I, as a person who benefits from my whiteness, have to fear when it comes to just giving an audience to a claim of racism from someone in a marginalized group or someone who's amplifying the voices of the marginalized? If I really take oppression seriously and don't want to further oppress people, then I should walk that talk, and at the very least listen to the voices of the people who are paying the cost for my advantages in life. The commenter continues, quote, Asking questions and trying to understand is generally a good thing, but I don't think any and all accusations of racism are fair and should be accepted, unquote. I don't think I've ever said that all accusations of racism are fair and should be accepted. What I've said is that I should be the bigger person since I have nothing to lose based on race as a white person and give serious consideration to claims of racism. I should recognize either that my language or behavior has added to someone's oppression based on race and merits the accusation, or I should recognize that something I have done or said gave the impression that I was targeting someone marginalized and adding to their experience of disempowerment. What I should not do is ignore a marginalized person who's letting me know that I am somehow contributing to their experience of marginalization, even psychologically, because the psychological damage caused by social marginalization is well documented. When it comes to race, a person literally has to be avoiding data and information, denying demonstrable reality to not see the inequities that exist at both local and global levels. Our world economy is driven by the continued legacy of colonialism, which is overt in areas like Central and South America and Africa. Efforts tied to deforestation and coal tan mining fuel an economy where white nations benefit the most from dangerous and deadly exploitation of non-white nations and communities, and where lethal violence and displacement are still ongoing for non-white people who have no access to the white-crafted Western legal system, 
who in many cases can't even speak a language that would be well understood by a Western lawyer from any nation, don't have any methods or modes of communication necessary to enlist legal aid, and who aren't even aware and don't even recognize the Western legal system. They continue, quote, It's quite understandable that someone can get offended and defensive by being accused of racism and being called a racist, unquote. No, it really isn't. It's a privileged, knee-jerk reaction to a label that describes unavoidable realities. It's like saying it's understandable that someone can get offended by being told they're breathing. What's understandable to me is when someone is called a word that targets them for real disempowerment, for denial of resources, income, housing, access to positions of power, a voice in a world where they're confronted by hostility and threats from people with the social standing in a power hierarchy to make good on those threats. When someone lives their life with a knee on their neck, it's understandable that language that is used to perpetuate that, to identify them as a member of a group targeted for disempowerment, denial, and assault, would get a reaction from them. But racist, used against a person who literally benefits every day from their position in a racial hierarchy, is not in that category. I do not understand Derek Chauvin feeling upset or threatened by George Floyd shouting racist from under his boot. I do understand how other people hurling slurs at Floyd while he's choking under that boot would be an added blow to his situation, where he needs help and support, not someone to align with and cheer on his oppressor and his oppression. I do not understand how a billionaire feels offended when a person struggling in poverty says, eat the rich. I do understand how a person struggling in poverty, in a system working against them at every level, can have a bad reaction when a billionaire tells them they are nothing but trash in the system that billionaire is perpetuating every day that keeps that person in poverty, in poverty. And the comment continues, quote, It really is like a slur, and calling it white fragility is condescending, and dismissing it like white fragility, as you do, is doubly offensive and is itself racist, end quote. So the person saying I don't need to consider allegations of racism is calling me racist. Should I not consider it? Should I say it's unfair so I don't need to consider it? Should I say that as a white person, I don't need to consider allegations of racism? Isn't that what the commenter recommended? I should do none of that. I should look at what has been said and consider it and address it. Was it racist for me to say that a white person accused of racism should apologize and then address the concerns, valid or not? I have thought about it, and my conclusion is that it's not racist. It's accurate. When I have the luxury and privilege to ignore a comment or pay attention to it, getting bent out of shape over it is unwarranted. It reminds me of the scene in Schindler's List, where a Jewish prisoner on a march finds an old shriveled piece of fruit on the ground under a tree. He digs it out of the ground and eats it because he's starving. The guard becomes outraged, calls it theft, because the tree is owned by whoever owns the property, and promptly executes the prisoner. I think calling that guard fragile is about the mildest of criticisms I could convey. And here is the white supremacist definition of racism being employed. I use race. I criticized white people based on race. Therefore, I must be racist. I am happy to consider this and talk about it. It's an ironic example of a false allegation of racism, and I'm not freaking out over it. I'm not offended or clutching my pearls. How is this possible? How can I be calm? 
because I understand where it's coming from, because I used to hold views similar to this, and also because I've seen white people defend this sort of commentary often. It stems from the definition of racism being used, and I reject that as a useful definition, in that it simply treats any criticism of a group based on race as equivalent to any other. Importantly, white people created white supremacy. It's like creating a religion where you attack gay people, and then when someone calls you a homophobic bigot, you respond with, you're the real bigot, you're the one attacking my religion, this is religious persecution. It's impossible to talk about white supremacist culture without describing how white people are the main benefactors and perpetrators of these systems, because white people are the ones holding most of the power in these systems. If white people can't stay calm during that discussion, then their attitude, their fragility, is going to be one more impediment to solving the problem. It's going to be another mechanism that perpetuates a white supremacist system by blocking conversations that could lead to solutions. As a white person, I had to get over myself with regard to that, and I encourage others who care about fostering a more just society to consider doing the same. I don't get to prop up a centuries-old white supremacist system and then complain when someone calls me out based on race, when I'm selfishly oppressing people for the benefit of white people and white nations. If I'm going to be an oppressor and use my whiteness to leverage that, I'm inviting criticism of that oppression based on my whiteness. And again, without social power, I'm not being oppressed as a white person when someone says I'm being overly sensitive about someone pointing out what they perceive to be racist behavior or language coming from me, even if they're wrong. It's not a slur because it doesn't remove my white privilege. I lose zero of the advantages I enjoy from being white because someone points out I'm becoming irrationally threatened and outraged at someone pointing out that I literally am not being harmed by someone noting that my outrage is unwarranted. When I act threatened when there is no threat, my reaction is, by definition, irrational. When someone on the disempowered end of the spectrum is called out, however, and identified as less than, it does more damage to them by perpetuating their marginalized class and status. When someone on the empowered end of the spectrum is called out as being empowered by their status, there is no reason to feel threatened. So being offended is merely performative. It's not warranted. It's me acting like I'm being damaged, but no damage is actually being done to me. It's a tantrum because I'm being told an unflattering truth about myself. Or alternatively, if what I'm being told isn't true, it still does me zero harm because it can't touch my whiteness and the benefits and advantages that I have because of that status. In my former activism, we used to say, if you don't want to be called ridiculous, maybe refrain from doing things worthy of ridicule. And in this case... If you don't want to be called out on white fragility, then maybe stop clutching your pearls when someone calls you out for doing or saying something that they perceive as racist, when being called out does no demonstrable harm to you. And next they add, quote, and just unfortunately shows how woke you've become, unquote. It really is ironic that woke has become an insult in some circles. I think it's telling that the contrast is with being asleep. One is a state of non-conscious dreaming, the other is a state of being aware and alert and conscious of one's surroundings. It speaks volumes that we have communities of people who believe that being awake and aware is something negative, a state to avoid, who seem to be suggesting that a lack of conscious awareness is preferable. It's also worth noting that woke is a term that came out of the black community, and most often when I hear it disparaged, it's coming out of white communities. The comment goes on, quote, 
Some allegations of racism are certainly valid and legit, but not all accusations of racism are correct and fair, unquote. And this is entirely irrelevant to how I choose to respond. And that's the key. As an empowered person, I can choose how I respond because I have nothing to lose. Nothing is threatened. No harm will come to me. To just listen and strive to do better when it comes to how I behave in a society where there is a great deal of well-documented social inequity based on race and where I, as a white person, am on top of that racial hierarchy. Finally, they invoke my prior work in the secular community and say that they miss seeing me in my role within that community. I don't doubt it. They sound like someone who prefers a person who offers comfortable agreement over uncomfortable criticism. When I read that final line after everything else he said, what I heard was, I preferred you when you only talked about things that made me feel validated and superior, and when your efforts were only geared toward benefiting me. What work has this person done to inform themselves about racism? What efforts have they made to be anti-racist, both socially and personally, in their own life? I have no idea, but I'd be willing to wager a guess. Not long ago, I held very different views than I hold now. I got to where I am because I was willing to reconsider and rethink my positions and acknowledge I was wrong and had been misled by a dominant culture of race in the same way I'd been misled by a dominant culture of religion. And if I continue to listen and learn and consider, then it will be that ability that will account for what I believe 10 years from now. And right now, I don't have a clue what those views will be, or if I'll even still be here. But nowhere does this person justify how they would assess an allegation of racism without considering the reasoning or observations behind it. In other words, how do I preemptively dismiss an allegation of racism if I'm not willing to consider it at all? They begin by saying I don't have to listen to or consider unfair accusations, then provide no reason why their own particular allegation against me as a racist should be considered. When they call me out for explaining white fragility in terms of a white person who can't bear to even be told they're doing something racist. That is, why should I consider their claim rather than, as he suggests, dismiss it without consideration as unfair? And all of this after they ironically admit that, quote, asking questions and trying to understand is generally a good thing, unquote. It's apparently not a good thing, though, in the context of racism, where they believe white people can simply dismiss any criticism out of hand without consideration, simply by asserting without evidence that it's unfair. Meanwhile, they certainly felt entitled to publicly make their white opinion known for anyone online to see, the same opinion that has dominated the narrative and dialogue for centuries now. That apparently is okay to expect non-whites and allies to shut up and listen to as they are shouted over by a huge mob of dominant white voices, white history, white economy, white criminal justice, white politics, white everything. But it's outrageous to suggest they should be willing to listen to someone else's reasons for thinking they could possibly be a racist, whether they are correct or not. Dr. David Ince has been featured on a few episodes and was on a thread recently where I was discussing this correspondence. I wanted to share his take. From the time I hear that, I know to prepare for racism to be unleashed, because I know that whatever the thing is that is, quote, unfair for a white person, unquote, is a thing that black people are expected to do every day. (music) 
that's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.